This is the ballad of Hollywood Jack and the Rage Cage And Hollywood Jack hit the big time and went to make movies From iHeartRadio, the Based on True Events anthology We chronicle true events in the Hollywood tradition That is to say, adhering to the facts As long as the facts don't get in the way of a good story First up The Don, the definitive 24-episode podcast series on Hollywood producer Don Simpson. Episode 3, Mobsters and Tennis. Days after Don's death, Pierce crosses paths with Don's old rival producer, Robert Evans. Alan Carr had been out of show business for seven years. Other than trips to Tahiti, where he would pack a week's worth of pills and sequester himself in his hotel room popping painkillers and drinking champagne... Alan never left Hillhaven. He had long given up hope he would ever again work in show business. Pierce had no reason to believe Alan wasn't telling the truth. But Alan's remark on Don's sexuality confounded him. To Pierce, there wasn't a man with more testosterone, more Hemingway swagger, more heteromasculinity than Don. It was Don who led the Hollywood studio heads on rafting trips down the Colorado River. It was Don who organized the gun clubs and hunting trips and late-night poker games. And it was Don who created the image of the alpha male 80s movie star that every 13-year-old boy in the world wanted to be. And yet, Alan Carr was telling Pierce that it was an all-gay male fantasy? In re-watching Don's films... American Gigolo, Saturday Night Fever, Top Gun, I began to see the not-so-subtle homoerotic messages Alan was speaking of. Alan Carr had mentioned that Don's funeral was to be held the following morning on the West Side. Pierce didn't want to make the same mistake he did at Morton's by arriving conspicuously late and underdressed. He regretted not borrowing one of Don's suits when he was sleuthing around his bedroom. Don had over 50 Armanis in his closet, and they were the same height. 5'7", and depending on Don's weight, a size 40. Pierce made a quick stop into French Connection on the 3rd Street Promenade, emerging in a black Armani knockoff, big in the shoulder pads, giving Pierce the appearance of a movie theater usher. In his black sunglasses and black Pontiac Firebird, he drove with the top down to the star-studded funeral of Don Simpson. In 1996, a Los Angelino centrally located would typically give oneself 20 minutes on the surface streets to arrive cross town. Pierce gave himself 40 minutes to make it to Don's surface. Extra time was needed as he was having difficulty remembering to drive on the right side of the road while constantly having to check his Thomas Guide map sprawled out on the passenger seat. He finally arrived at Hillside Memorial Cemetery with just a few minutes to spare. He entered and saw a towering white stone monument with a canopy held aloft by six white columns. A series of terraced, blue-tiled waterfalls cascaded down the hillside. Beneath the canopy was the marble sarcophagus of the jazz singer Al Jolson. Inside was a three-foot bronze statue of Jolson down on one knee in his famous jazz singer pose. Al Jolson, 1886-1950. Misunderstood hero or villain. How would Don be remembered, Pierce wondered. Directly behind the Jolson Monument was a mammoth, two-story mausoleum housing thousands of crypts. This has to be the finest mausoleum in the world. It feels like someone's home. 
if that someone was a pharaoh. There are couches and lamps gilded in gold and ivory, shaped like the Star of David. At the time, Pierce felt a welcome break in losing himself in the maze of tombs, reading off the names of the stars. Jack Benny, Milton Berle, Dinah Shaw, Shelley Winters, the actor who played Dr. Kimball in the Fugitive TV series. A noble man on the run in pursuit of the truth. I'd always drawn that parallel to journalism. The running was what made life less ordinary. The tapes then reveal Pierce in a sort of self-analysis, reflecting on his chosen profession and vagabond lifestyle. It's unclear if this was the reason Pierce was late for Don's funeral. The next tape skips ahead with Pierce recording Don's funeral in progress. The crowd is 20 rows deep. It is not the slick, well-heeled crowd from a few nights earlier at Morton's. Just the opposite. The mourners are older, conservative East Coast, many in their 60s and 70s. Pierce notes there's something of a New York Godfather vibe. He scanned the lineup for a familiar celebrity face, Will Smith, Eddie Murphy, Tom Cruise, but there wasn't a name to be found. But for Robert Evans. Robert Evans had been the president of Paramount overseeing classic films like The Godfather, The Conversation, Harold and Maude, Chinatown, Marathon Man, Rosemary's Baby. He was a maverick of the artist-driven movie. Eventually, Evans in the art films era would be pushed out by another maverick, Don Simpson and his high-concept movies. Evans would later become a producer at Paramount, the executive who would decide whether Evans' films would get the green light. That would be Don. Evans' career followed a rapid downhill trajectory. His cocaine use had finally gotten him into trouble when he was caught smuggling cocaine into Malta for Robin Williams and the crew of Popeye. Evans called on Don to bail him out, soliciting the help of Henry Kissinger in some international diplomacy. Two years later, Evans would be arrested in possession of $19,000 of highly sought-after pharmaceutical cocaine. It was made by one company, Merck, which made it difficult to obtain but easy to trace. His punishment was what you would expect for a big-shot Hollywood producer. Probation. In lieu of jail time, the judge instructed Evans to make a series of anti-drug PSAs called Get High on Yourself. Sunday, it's the Get High on Yourself special with Henry Winkler, Carol Burnett, Paul Newman, Bob Hope, and Ted Nugent. A star-filled special from the singing of Dr. J and Magic Johnson. Bob emptied his Rolodex to call in celebrities to sing along about the message of staying away from drugs. The celebrity sing-along would be a precursor to productions like We Are the World and Band-Aid's Don't They Know It's Christmas. Get High on Yourself would suggest that that was just what Evans was doing when he made the production. And yet, the PSAs became the feel-good event of the summer, airing on NBC for 26 weeks. Tonight, get high on yourself with Robert Conrad in the coach of the year. You take on these kids, you ask it for trouble. He can't walk, but he's a tough coach with lots of heart. I want these boys to know that they've got a chance. And he shows a bunch of delinquent losers how to become winners. I teach, you learn. The coach of the year, just the beginning of Get High on Yourself Week on NBC. Two years after Get High on Yourself, 
cocaine would once again bring Evans down in what would become known as the Cotton Club scandal. Evans was implicated but not charged in the murder-for-hire plot of his producing partner, Ray Radin. The murderer and his accomplice, Karen Greenberger, who was said to be Evans' lover at the time, had shot Radin multiple times in the head. And then, just to err on the safe side, blew Radin up with dynamite to make identifying the body more challenging. Evans would plead the fifth during the trial. It would be 12 years before Evans would be making movies again. Pierce attempted to record Bob Evans' eulogy, but sitting so far away from the podium made it difficult to salvage much of the sound quality, but for a few excerpts. He was known as the myth. Many said they knew him, but few actually did. One thing was for sure. He was one powerful motherfucker. Evans was speaking as if Don was some sort of mobster. The Godfather vibe only reinforced the tribute. There wasn't a day in 30 years we didn't spend an hour on the phone together. He treated me with the same respect as when I was a wannabe actor as when I ran Paramount. In life and in memory, he was the quintessential example of a friendship treasured. Pierce wondered if this was true or just Hollywood showmanship. Were Don Simpson and Bob Evans really that close? They were cut from the same cloth both outsized personalities with a reputation for outsized excess. But where Evans was all about the art, Don was all about the box office. In the end, Don's vision won the day. Pierce wondered if Evans would tell the Popeye cocaine story, or his wild times with Don in Houston working on Urban Cowboy. But Evans didn't have the focus to tell stories. It was apparent to Pierce and everyone in the crowd that he was high on cocaine. He was long-winded, rambling. He was known as the silence, and one of his sayings was, continued silence is the greatest insurance policy for continued breathing. One word for him, and there wasn't a second one. He never had to say anything twice. Pierce was now very intrigued. He knew that during Don's tenure, Paramount had given a minority stake to mobster financier Michele Sindano, who represented the interests of the Vatican. Was the Vatican mob here at Don's funeral? Pierce took a second glance around the crowd. The men in dark coats now seem less Hollywood, more hardened businessman types, disdainful of the law. Mobsters. A nod from Sydney and the Teamsters changed management. A nod from Sydney and the Santa Anita racetrack closes. A nod from Sydney and Vegas shuts down. Sydney Korshak was a powerful man and a true friend, and I will miss him dearly. Pierce cursed himself. The color drained from his face. He realized he was now sitting in a crowd full of gangsters at the funeral of Sidney Korshak, the fabled fixer for the Chicago mob, the man who from the 1940s until his death was considered the most powerful lawyer in the world. As the mourners lined up to sprinkle dirt over the casket in the Jewish burial tradition, Pierce lowered his head. He had missed Don's funeral and any opportunity to talk to those who might know anything about his death. The crowd soon dispersed to their waiting town cars. But Bob Evans stuck around, holding court with a trio of tough guy fixer types. Pierce lingered, hoping for an opportunity to talk to Evans. 
Feeling like he was getting too close to the Evans crew, he drifted out of earshot over to the grave. As a cover, he bowed his head as if lost in grief, pretending to pray for the most intimidating mob fixer in Hollywood history. Pierce looks up to find Evans and the mobsters now circled around him. Pierce, unsure what to do, continues to pray intensely, keeping his head down, while the mobsters pay their final condolences. Eventually, Evans and his crew move to their cars. Pierce fails to get Evans' attention. Just as Evans approaches his car, Pierce shouts out, Get high on yourself! His crew suddenly turns around. Was Pierce mocking him? Pierce tells him that he was there covering the Get High PSA at NBC Studios. He was the guy standing behind Paul Newman and the kid from Eight is Enough. To prove the point, he bursts into song. Evans stood speechless for a moment. Pierce explains that he had mistakenly attended Sidney Korshak's funeral, believing it was Don Simpson's funeral, and that he had hoped to ask Evans about his relationship with Don at Paramount. Much to his astonishment, Bob Evans invites Pierce to come to his house for an interview. The next day. Pierce arrives inside the gates at Evans' estate known as Woodland. Years later, he would come back to Woodland for a profile in the home section for the LA Times. It was modest in size, just three bedrooms with a guest house, but the grounds, privately perched on two beautifully manicured acres, were magical. It was once a hideaway for Greta Garbo, gated, secluded, the kind of estate that would suggest a butler, and that is just who greeted Pierce at the door. Would Pierce be playing tennis or swimming, he inquired. Pierce played in borrowed tennis whites and Stan Smith's. Evans told Pierce he was now up close and personal with Dustin's balls, an apparent reference to the shorts he was wearing. Dustin Hoffman often left an extra set of tennis clothes for when he dropped by impromptu for a match. The tennis game was recounted and recorded after the fact. I'm rewarded by my gaffe in missing Don's funeral with a tennis match at Robert Evans's estate. If I had known then of the notables that had played on Evans's hallowed court, Barbara Streisand, Ted Kennedy, Jack Nicholson, Laurence Olivier, I perhaps would have been more nervous. In warm-ups, I mention I'm more of a fan than a player. I recount my one and only tennis tale. When I was 16, I snuck onto centre court at Wimbledon to witness my fellow countryman Roger Taylor upset Rod Laver in the fourth round. Bob casually mentions he's played with Laver several times. And Bobby Riggs, and Guillermo Viaz, and Jimmy Connors. Bob and Connors were doubles partners. They played 41 matches and went love for 41. There's a disarming humility that speaks to Evans's showbiz career, an outlook that he was one lucky bastard that deserved little credit for his successes and much credit for his failures. I suspect Don with his total lack of humility, would say the inverse. Evans will tell you he stumbled into making some of the best movies ever made. Don will tell you he made some of the best movies ever made because it was he who made them. These men couldn't be more different. And yet, their careers were intertwined for over a decade. 
Evans had an effective slice backhand and an infuriating lob that took the wind out of my power strokes and taunted me into many an unforced error. We play our gentleman's best of three sets. I'm no match for Evans's crafty game. My stamina is embarrassingly weak. A reminder I need to cut back on cigarettes. Evans over Benton, 6-4, 6-2. I borrow a swimsuit. Evans makes another Dustin Hoffman's balls joke. Apparently, I'm also swimming in Mr. Hoffman's swim trunks. I feel a bit like Mr. Hoffman, floating in an empty pool like the graduate, gazing up at a cloudless sky on one of those magical Hollywood days where time stands still and the world's problems are none of my own. Bob invites me to stay for lunch. His butler serves hot dogs and cold beer as we sit by the pool. Now I see why Greta Garbo called this place her hideaway. I've never felt such peace. Bob waves to a small crowd being led by the butler to the back screening room. I recognise the actor Billy Zane from his brilliant villainy in the film Dead Calm. He is accompanied by a blonde actress whose name escapes me. I believe she played the lead in the Mannequin movies. Christy Swanson was the actress in question. They disappear into Evans's screening room to get a sneak peek of Evans's new film, The Phantom. Evans has high hopes for the film spawning a franchise. Come on, get in. You can fly a plane? Of course you can. Why ask? The Phantom would be released later that year. It would tank at the box office. I have momentarily forgotten my purpose for the visit is to interview Evans on Sydney Korshak. And so did Evans. It is immediately evident that the only subject Evans wishes to expound upon is Bob Evans. No man is more gifted at courting publicity. After all, he has a movie coming out. He needs a profile. Bob begins to talk and talk and talk. As much as I want to hear his highly entertaining stories of the golden days of 70s cinema, I am disciplined enough to steer Evans to speak of his time at Paramount when Don Simpson was president of production. It was here that Evans revealed that after he came home from Korshak's funeral, he was stirred by Pierce's interview request regarding Don. The encounter prompted him to sit down to write several additional scenes about his relationship with Don for his new play, a one-man show he was set to perform. Evans told Pierce the material could be used in lieu of an interview. Pierce indicated his preference for a straightforward interview, but Evans was eager to test out the material. He would allow Pierce to record. The setup was not ideal. To complicate matters, the Santa Ana winds were blowing hard that day and distorted much of the tape quality. In the recording, you'll find his voice was much more attuned to the younger actor Bob Evans, polished and theater-trained, a distinction from the gravel-voiced Evans of later years. Don and I leapfrogged each other for the good part of two decades. When I was high on the hog, Don was low on the pole. When I was broke, depressed, and out of the game, Don was beating his chest, the king of the mountaintop. Funny thing, we both started out as actors, and terrible actors at that. Too vain, too stiff, too self-aware. The difference? One of us had a bit of lady luck. The story goes that a young Evans was sunbathing at the Beverly Hills Hotel pool 
when he was discovered by the actress Norma Shearer, who hired him to play her husband, Irving Thalberg, in A Man with a Thousand Faces. Mind if I come in a minute? <laughs> you know, I don't look just for the barricades, but I've just come from a revolution. The premiere of The Jazz Singer. Lanya should have seen that audience. Whilst I was playing the lead in a major motion picture, poor Don couldn't get an audition for Cheerios. But Don was resourceful in ways I could never be. He couldn't act his way in movies, so he wrote his way in. Don wrote the movie Cannonball in five days. Get me the highway patrol. Squealing, smashing, crashing, it's a cross-country demolition derby. It's called the winner. Cannonball, rated PG. Don wrote himself apart as the tough-minded district attorney. He's the first guy speaking. He gets about 20 seconds of screen time. Sir, have you seen this? They're doing it again. Well, they're in for a surprise. If they're racing anywhere, they're going to race to the impound lot. Yes, sir? Get me Brad Phillips on the phone and tell him it's the district attorney. The movie also featured the pairing of Sylvester Stallone and Martin Scorsese as gangsters discussing a drug deal over fried chicken. Hey, Lester, you know, we got a lot of money riding on this thing. I made you so sure Benny's going to deliver our winner. i got to go back on my time. This stuff is great. Hey, I'm going to tell you something. You look very good fat, you know what I mean? It does something for you. In the three years that Don is pounding the pavement for acting work, I've graduated from actor to studio head. Success came fast. I moved into Woodland. The studio converts the pool house into a screening room, and everybody in show business shows up to the party. Everybody but Don. I was dating Grace Kelly, Lana Turner, Ava Gardner, Ally McGraw. Don was hunting dates in the classifieds. Even after Don became arguably the biggest producer on the planet, he continued to look for dates in the classifieds. He was too self-conscious to ask a woman out in person. I'm playing tennis with Johnny Carson and the head of General Motors. Don is playing tennis with the old Russians at Plummer Park. This was when Don first moved to Los Angeles. In order to make rent, Don hustled tennis matches at Plummer Park. Often when Don lost a match, he was rumored to drop his shorts and pee all over the net. Robert Town said if I was to come back in another life as a racehorse, I'd be named Caution to the Wind. My hot streak at Paramount came to an abrupt end. So long, Evans. Take a soft landing producing deal on your way out. Evans left the studio a year before Don was hired at Paramount. Don would climb the ranks in the story department, ultimately becoming president of production. He was number three behind Barry Diller and Michael Eisner. But the only guy he really cared about was the Gulf and Western CEO, Charlie Bluthorn. Bluthorn was a powerful, intimidating movie mogul with a heavy Austrian accent and a psychotic temper. The press labeled him the Mad Austrian and Hurricane Charlie. In Bluthorn, Don saw a clear trajectory of succession. Don would one day succeed Bluthorn as the last mogul to ever run a studio. It's unclear from Evans if Don was even close enough to being in consideration to succeed Charlie Bluthorn, but he did acknowledge Don's unrelenting pace that fueled his ambitions. Don just moved faster than everyone else. Uh, no time to smell the roses. He outraced everybody until the only one he was racing against was time. And for a while, he kept up the pace. I remember visiting my good friend Robert Town on the set of Days of Thunder. I was awestruck by Don's transformation. He looked the same age as when he first started working at Paramount. And I asked Town, was it the Scientology he was dabbling in, the supplements, the 
magic youth serums, nobody knew. But he was doing everything he could to keep up with Tom Cruise. Don never let his dreams of becoming an actor die. On Days of Thunder, he took a page out of his acting debut in Cannonball 20 years earlier by writing a part for himself. He was set for a supporting role opposite the biggest movie star in the world, Tom Cruise. This was always Don's dream, to be a movie star. I remember seeing him on set in costume in his race car suit. The makeup girl is touching him up. There's 200 crew members revving up the race cars. It's loud. It's exciting. It's pure Don. And I'll never forget what he said. Bob, I will never, ever lift my foot off the gas pedal. And I knew then it wasn't going to end well for Don. Pierce asks if Evans knew anything of Don's last days. Here, Evans asks to speak off the record. It was apparent that Evans had never wished to give Pierce a candid interview about Don. Pierce would come to realize that nobody in Hollywood wanted to go on the record about Don. So, off the record, Evans mentioned that he had heard from a mutual friend that Don might have had mob troubles. Pierce recalled the motion centers Don had installed under his carpeting. He asked Evans if Don thought somebody might be after him. Again, Evans mentioned the mob rumor. He clarified it was not the Italian-American mob, but the Italian mob. The tapes at Evans' house ended here, with a final tape recorded after the fact. I wanted to ask him more about the mob rumor when the doorbell rings. Evans excuses himself. Before he does, he wants to show me his collection of designer eyeglasses. He has over a hundred pairs. He gives me a pair of prototype eyeglasses he's patented. They're designed to rest on the forehead and the cheekbones, but not the nose. They're a necessity, he says, for anyone who's had plastic surgery. I have a look in the mirror. The designer plastic surgery eyeglasses look ridiculous. I came here for some information, and I've got nothing but a useless pair of glasses that don't rest on my nose. I try to think of something that might spark Evans to shed some light on Don's final days. I ask again, who was the mutual friend that mentioned the mob? The butler calls Evans. Evans excuses himself. The butler takes the coats of two well-proportioned women. They're attractive, well-dressed. They don't seem like actresses or models, and yet they appear to be in the profession of looking beautiful. Evans takes a detour through the powder room, taking a toot off a cocaine spoon. He turns to see me looking through the window and beckons me to join in. He chuckles, making an off-handed remark about how he and Don actually had a few things in common, a love for movies, tennis, cocaine and shared girlfriends. You'd think we would have enjoyed each other's company more. I blurt out my amazement that he and Don had shared girlfriends. He laughs, looking at me like I'm the dumbest schmuck on the face of the planet. It's a beat before I realise what the women are. Prostitutes. Seeing my window closing, I ask again if I might speak with the mutual friend that he had shared with Don. At this point, Evans had launched into a story about visiting his friend, the French movie star Alain Dulon in Paris, and how Dulon gave Evans a welcome gift upon arrival, a trip to Madame Claude's, the most famous brothel in the world. Evans wrapped his arm around Pierce and wrote down a name and address of an exclusive brothel. 
he was giving Pierce his Alain Doulon welcome gift upon arrival. Evans then calls attention to the brunette and the blonde waiting in the foyer. I have yet to see their faces, but in my mind they are already the most beautiful women I have ever seen. The blonde flips her hair over her shoulder and turns to greet Evans, who slips the cocaine spoon under her nose. My heart skips a beat when I see her face. She looks uncannily like the actress I saw two nights ago, Autumn Weston. I take a step forward, discarding my designer sunglasses. She doesn't just look like Autumn Weston. She is Autumn Weston. She gives me a smile as if to say, we've met before. My mouth opens, but no words come out. Evans takes her hand and leads her upstairs. Listen to The Dawn on the iHeartRadio Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 3 Disclaimers. First off, Don's relationship with Robert Evans. There isn't much documentation that they were friends, nor that they were enemies. Evans was once the head of production at Paramount. When he was forced out of the job, he struggled to make movies, in part because he had to answer to Don, who took his job as head of production. They made two movies together, Urban Cowboy and Popeye, both considered flops. There were rumors of rampant cocaine use on set. Bob Evans did, in fact, speak at Sidney Korshak's funeral, as we documented. He was reported to be most likely high on cocaine. We don't believe that Bob also went to Don's funeral, though it was likely on a different day than Korshak's. Don and Bob both loved movies, cocaine, prostitutes, and tennis, most likely in that order. Where Evans was beloved as a mensch and a charming raconteur who oversaw some of the great arthouse films of the 70s, Don was much reviled as a narcissist and a bad boy who did much to destroy the 70s arthouse movement and who, in the words of his director on Popeye, Robert Altman, said, I'm only sorry he didn't live longer and suffer more. Other disclaimers. The actors Billy Zane and Christy Swanson did not arrive during Pierce's fictitious visit. Evans did actually perform a one-man show, but we fictionalized that he was trying to incorporate a monologue about Don into his act. The voice of Evans was played by the actor Matt Nolan. Pierce's mention of the sunglasses that Evans designed to rest on the forehead specifically for those who have undergone plastic surgery was, in fact, true. We don't believe that Evans actually brought the sunglasses to the marketplace, but we'd love to get a pair.